Good morning. My name is Maddie. Um, I'm a year 12 student at TCC. Today we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 1 to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles up the back corner, so feel free to grab one and to keep it. So Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thanks for reading that, Maddie. Uh, well, welcome again. My name's James. I'm going to open up God's Word this morning as we think about being centered on Christ. It's so good that you're all here today and have so many guests and staff of TCC. Um, last night, I, we're, I was watching with someone else from church, and my, one of, and my sons were watching how uh, the Broncos beat the Saints, and one of my sons was pretty stoked about that fact, and I was pretty stoked that the Broncos beat the Saints at St. George as well. But there was one comment that one of my sons said. We shared with him that TCC, the teachers and staff are going to be here today, and he said, isn't that great? He was excited because he said, I get to call them by their first name. <laughs> now, I don't, I, I'm not going to tell you which son it is, and I don't know whether they will, but hey, Apologies if, you know, my children run around and start calling you by your first name. I've told them to call you Mr. and Mrs. or Miss, if you, you know. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. But let's pray, hey. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now. We just ask that you'll just let us just see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. May our hearts delight in him. May they overflow 
uh, with gratitude so that we don't move on. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Uh, a couple of months ago, I was over in uh, Jerusalem. I was on a trip, a study tour, and, and I was in the old city of Jerusalem. I wanted to walk where Jesus had walked. And so I'd been sort of walking around the city. I'd done about 15 k's this day, and it was about 1 p.m., 12.30 in the afternoon. I'd seen the, you know, the Mount of Olives. I'd climbed to the top. I'd sat there and sort of pondered in the Garden of Gethsemane around these 900-year old olive trees to try and picture what it was like for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after you've walked about 15 k's, you get a bit hungry. And so I was busting for a decent kebab, some local cuisine, some baklava. I was really excited. And so I thought it's time to walk back into the old city. And so I made a plan and I started walking. And it was 12.30, quarter to one, on a Friday afternoon in Jerusalem. In, and it's the day where the Muslims pray. They all go to the mosque. And so I've decided I'm going to walk in through the, uh, the Lion's Gate, which is one entry near the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm going to walk up this street. And by the time I got just to the entry of the street, I realised, wow, the, the, the pressure was on. There was a bus, there was an I-20 Hyundai there jammed up against it, there was scooters and there was people yelling and beeping and, and it was just mayhem because thousands upon tens of thousands of Muslim men, women and kids were coming out of the old city of Jerusalem. And as I'm walking up the hill, the pressure was just too great. I just kept walking. I wanted to get through there to get some decent kebabs, get some baklava. And I was excited and I got near the gate and I just gave up. I thought, I'm going to sit to the side for at least 30 minutes until the tens of thousands of people have walked through the gate. The pressure was just too much because the crowd was walking the opposite direction to which I was walking. The pressure to conform was there. And now as I sat to the side of the gate... It was really interesting. There was markets there. There was baklava, there was strawberries, there was nuts, there was selling toilet paper and hand wipes. There was everything for sale. And there's people yelling and, and bargaining and it's going woo, woo, everywhere, left and right. And I'm sitting there paying attention to this. And by, you know, after about five minutes of this, I'm starting to get more attention to it. I think I should go and buy some strawberries, a kilo of it. I could go and buy some nuts. You know, and I was drifting, and I was in this moment of paying attention to this crowd that I reckon I was pretty close to buying toilet paper, a six-pack, and bringing it home. <laughs> now, but I thought best, you know, well, I, I, my judgment call in that moment was, no, nah, no. Nah. But the pressure to conform was there of wanting to buy all those things. The pressure to walk the other way, but there's also this pressure to pay attention to everything that's going on around you. I wonder, do you wake up every morning feeling the pressure to conform to this world? First thing you do is you open up your phone, you read your 24-hour news articles, and you start to feel the pressure and the voices of this world cramming in. Or you look at Facebook or Instagram, and you see some friends, and you think, man, they've got their life together, they've got their family together, and you just wish you could be like them, or go on holidays every second weekend to their water bungalow, and you think, then my life would be right. That pressure, those voices that we hear over and over again, or that voice that we hear now, that, that voice that says, how you're feeling is how, well, how you're feeling defines who you are. 
But if you're feeling happy, where well, you are, but if you're not happy, there's something wrong. And, it's, and, and there's this, this idea that feelings define who you are. Or the other, the other pressure that the happy life, you can only have the happy life if you succeed. Those voices that press in. And as followers of Jesus, I reckon we have the daily pressure of voices coming in from everywhere to conform to the crowd. And does it leave you asking the question, who do I listen to? Who should I listen to? See, the book of Hebrews is written to Christian, Hebrew Christians who are feeling the pressure to conform. It's probably written to Jew, Jewish Christians who have come from Judaism and they've become Christian. And they're facing the pressure to go back. See, as they walk out of the city of Jerusalem as Christians, all the Jews are walking in. The crowd's walking to the temple. The crowd's walking towards religion and they're trying to walk against it. They go home for a meal and their mum and dad have not yet known Jesus. And so their table conversation is, well, Moses is greater. Abraham's greater. Who's Jesus? And then not only that, they feel the pressure because in the first part of the first century, Jewish people were protected from persecution by the Roman Empire. And so there's that pressure as a Christian now to be seen as a Jew, to get protection against persecution. Who do I listen to? Who are we to listen to as we feel the pressures to conform to the many voices around us? Now, you might be here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've come seeking and you're seeking these things out. And maybe you are asking that question, who should I listen to? Well, Hebrews 1, I hope, will answer that question for you today. Who are we to listen to? Well, it's pretty simple in Hebrews chapter 1. It's Jesus, because Jesus is greater. See, in chapter 1, straight out of the bank, we see that Jesus is greater. The word greater is used about 19 times in the New Testament. It's 12 to 13 times it's used just in the letter to the Hebrews. It's that word superior, it's greater, it's better. So the, the point here in this chapter is Jesus is just greater. Did you notice that in verses 1 to 4? Some of the language, like Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. That's all of creation is his. He's the one who created all things. We read elsewhere that it was through him and by him he created the universe. Now that's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? When in the Milky Way, there's a, over 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And scientists say there could be something like 50 billion galaxies in our universe. Now this week, I was trying to do some calculations that if, if you were to travel the, the circumference of the universe at the speed of a light year it would take you 93 billion years for light to travel around. Now, get this. Now, a light year is the speed at which light travels in a year. And I think it travels 9 trillion kilometres in one year. Now, for those who are third unit mass and up there, you can probably do the rest of the sums. And, you know, 93 billion years times 9 trillion kilometres is pretty phenomenal. And yet he created all that. From the vastness of our universe to the smallest little cell, Jesus created that. And not only did he create it, he actually radiates the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He's the exact representation of God. Now, my three boys, they represent me, but they're not an exact representation. You know, my second child, people say I look like him, but he's not an exact representation. But here, Jesus is the exact representation of God. And to, and to beat that, not only is he exact but he actually sustains the whole universe by the power of his word. 
from the, the, the vast 93 trillion light years to the small, he upholds it with his word. See, Muhammad, Moses and Abraham couldn't do that. No matter how much I go out today and shout at the skies and say, rain fall, I can't do it. And yet Jesus can. He can stop the world spinning in an instant by his word. He can move the earth a couple of meters and we'd all die. From the extremes of the universe to the small, this is who Jesus is. This is how great he is. And so who are we going to listen to in the midst of the fuss and the noise and the buzziness and the white noise of our world? Verses 1 to 4 tells us we listen to Jesus. And here's why, because Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus reveals God to us. Now, I've been, um, I've been hooked on the F1 series on Netflix called Drive to Survive. I never was really interested in F1 formula racing. It's where cars race around a track. But I'm really hooked on it. And I was just watching the fifth season this week. I finished it. And, and, and I was watching it because the CEO of Red Bull Racing is Christian Horner. Now, on the other side, that's Toto. He's the Mercedes guy. And for like decades, these guys have been at each other's throat. They don't like each other and they want to win. And thankfully, Red Bull in the last two years have won. And, and so last year, there's this moment Max Verstappen has already won the championship for himself, but they wanted to win the, like the, the car championship. And it's at the end of this last race. And, and, and Christian Horner is worried that Mercedes will beat them for the first time this year. And have a listen to what Christian Horner said. Seeing them go wheel to wheel, that's Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Seeing them go wheel to wheel, if we lose this race and the first race we lose to Mercedes, it's not going to be good. If there is a God, and if there is a higher power here, this is the time to show yourself. Now, isn't that interesting? He's, he, Max Verstappen's won, and yet here in this moment, he wants a miracle to happen, and he wants God to speak to him, and the way that God's going to speak to him is he's going to make sure that they win the championship. But I wonder, do we do the same sometimes? We, we want to listen to God. You know, in the midst of suffering or cancer, God, I want to... I'll know that you are real if you heal me from cancer. I'll know if you're real that in the midst of my dark depression, you will pull me out of it. Then I'll know that there is a real divine being. Do you ever find yourself asking, does God speak? Well, Hebrews tells us that God did in the Old Testament. He spoke through the prophets in verse 1. He spoke through Moses. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through Isaiah and Jeremiah. He even spoke through a talking donkey. And it's not the donkey off Shrek. But he talked through a donkey. And in verse 2, though, look now, we're in a new era. But in these last days, from Christ to Christ's return, God has spoken by his Son. Now, a better, a better probably way to emphasize what's going on is that he's spoken in his Son. He's spoken in Jesus. Jesus is the final word. There's nothing greater than Jesus. If you want God to speak, Hebrews says, look and listen to Jesus. We don't have to find lightning bolts from the sky. We don't have to hope that we have a divine encounter through suffering so that we believe that there is a God. No, God says, I have revealed myself and I've my final and ultimate revelation. The greatest and ultimate revelation is my son, Jesus. We don't need a new word from God. We just need Jesus. When someone comes along and claims to have a newer and better revelation, Hebrews says, no, don't move. Don't drift to that. You know, Muhammad comes along and says, I'm, don't be caught up in that. Because Jesus is the ultimate communication of God. 
because he's the greater prophet. See, a prophet represents God to the people. And so there next we have Jesus represents us to God. Who are we to listen to? Jesus. Because, see, a prophet represents God to the people, but a priest represents the people to God. Look at, the, look at verse 3. Halfway through it, it says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In the Old Testament, the priest, the great high priest, every year would go into, this, go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, on behalf of the people and offer up a sacrifice for the sins that those people have done. And then that priest would walk back out every year. They represent the people of God. But in Jesus, who is the great high priest, he's walked in, he's offered up his life, he's, he's sacrificed for us and he's sat down never to come back out. See, it's final and finished. He represents us before God. Now, I've only been pulled into the principal's office once at TCC, um, only once. Um, but I don't know about you, but when you go before a, a principal, you're always a little bit daunted. You're always a little bit worried. You know, as a kid, if you get before the principal's office, you're either there for two reasons, aren't you? You've either done something really, really good by your behaviour and your actions, or you've done something really, really bad. But when you come into the principal's office, you represent yourself. And if you've done enough, you'll get an award. If you haven't, you'll either be detentioned or you'll have to pay the punishment. But see, the good news of Jesus is that for you and me, as we come before God, no matter how much we want to represent us before God, you're always going to feel shame and guilt because of your sin. There's nothing you can do before God that will make you right with him. But who's there? Jesus represents us 24-7. So that means that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter the temptation, no matter the suffering, no matter how bad your week is and you've fallen and you've stuffed up, you've yelled at your kids or you've, you've done some really horrific sin, no matter what it is, if you're in Jesus and you're represented by Jesus, no matter what minute of what day it is, 24 hours a day, Jesus is interceding for you in the heavenly realms. You can enter with confidence because Jesus is there representing you. Who are we to listen to as we feel the pressure to conform? Well, we're to listen to Jesus. He reveals God. He's greater. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. And now we see that he's actually a greater king. See, he's the king who's forever. See, kings come and go. Queens come and go. Prime ministers lead and prime ministers go. But there's one who's had victory over sin and death. Look at the end of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand. That's kingly language. Look at verse 8. But about the son, he says, your throne. He's talking about Jesus. Your throne will what? Last forever and ever. A, a scepter of justice. Look at verse 13. Sit at my right hand. This is all kingly language. And so as we struggle... Maybe as you struggle in the faith or as you appear to be on a hard track right now. Or as you look at other people's social feeds as a retired person and you wish you'd done more in your life to succeed so that you could have these holidays. Or as you meet up as teachers, you meet up with disgruntled parents who always have something to complain about and you just feel overwhelmed and you think, is this what it's meant to be? 
we can look to Jesus and remember that his kingdom, that he is the forever king, and that means he will bring peace, ultimate peace, ultimate harmony, that we are then therefore as Christians, we're co-heirs with this king, that everything he gets, the whole universe is ours. He's the forever king. That's good news for us today. In a world filled with hurt and pain, there is a king who's going to bring in a kingdom where there's going to be no more pain, no more tears and no more sorrow. See, Jesus is greater. Jesus who is greater. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. He's a greater king. You start to sense this 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 package of just four verses, it just wants you to sit and go, Jesus is greater than anything else in this world. Who are we to listen to as we feel the pressure to conform? Now, don't think then for one minute that we make Jesus Lord. See, verses 1 to 4 shows, you know, have you ever, you know, we use this terminology, you know, you need to make Jesus Lord. Um, No, he already is Lord. To think that us puny individuals can make Jesus Lord and exalt him and go, he will be my Lord and da, 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 da. It's it's actually quite a small view of Jesus. Here, no, no, Hebrews says, no, he's already exalted. He's already Lord. Rather, we aren't to ask the question, will you make Jesus your Lord or make Jesus Lord? It's actually, will you submit to his authority? Will you submit to him as king? Submit is to center your life around the king. Because today, we're reminded in other passages of scripture that there is coming a day where every knee and every tongue and Every single person will confess that Jesus is Lord. But the question is, is will you either call him Lord today or will you wait till it's way too late? When I, got, um, when I moved here to Toon Gabby in 2021, in February 2021, to be the pastor here, I was pretty stoked that the motto of the school is centred in Christ. I thought that is incredibly wise. Because to be centred in Christ means that there is no life, no hope and no salvation outside of him. See, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Being centered on Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that we should have died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And his righteousness is now given to us. And so he represents us. We're forgiven and redeemed. And the good news is that there's nothing that we do. He's done it all. And it's by faith alone, through grace alone. So we live in a world that pressures us to succeed by doing, doing, doing. But Christianity isn't. It's about being centered around the one who has done it all. And so I love it that the school's motto is being centered in Christ. This, so this passage is a passage of comfort. See, verses 1 to 4 and verses 1 to 5, in a way, it's, it's a passage to comfort us as we hear so many voices to stay centered in Christ. But at the same time, as we find comfort, there's actually a really big warning here for all of us. 
There's a warning not to drift. Don't drift from Jesus. Have a look at verse 1. It starts off with a therefore. It wants you to make sure that you, you've understood the bit before it, and therefore here's how you react. We must pay the most careful attention. Do you notice that it doesn't just say pay attention? It says pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard. And what have we heard? Verses 1 to 15. So that we do not drift from Jesus. I love flying, except for the legroom. I was on an Airbus 380 earlier this year, and, and if you if you set off on the equator on an Airbus 380, and you set off to fly around the equator and land back at the same destination, that if you set off flying in a plane just one degree off, by the time you get around, you'll be 800 kilometers off target. See, to, to add one thing to Jesus, to just think this is just a little moment is actually to go way off course. See, one degree will fly you 800 kilometers off course. And so here it's saying don't drift from Jesus because the moment you start to just drift a little bit, you're going to be drifting a long way away. Because see, the logic of these verses in, in verses 5 to 13, it's, it's intriguing, it's, it's difficult. But there's like nine Old Testament references What's he doing? Well, see, remember that the church, these, these Hebrew Christians, they're being tempted by the pressure of the world to conform. They're being pressured to go, you know, Moses and Abraham are greater. And it appears, why do they mention angels? There's probably, they've probably got an unhealthy emphasis on angels. Angels are good, they're created by God, but they had an unhealthy emphasis on angels. And so the logic is, look at verse 5. It's a rhetorical question. If you're so caught up in angels, what is, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? What's the answer? No. Look at verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? Uh, no. They, they've drifted to the lesser. They've gone from greater to lesser. And I, I reckon, like, I look around this room, I, I reckon we're probably not caught up in angels. We probably don't have them hanging up in our rooms, and, and we, you know, we probably don't have an unhealthy emphasis on angels. Now, our, our society might. But here's the question, though. What is your unhealthy emphasis? What do you have an unhealthy emphasis on? What might be some hints that you've drifted? Because verse, verse 1 to 2 must mean that we drift. We must have that tendency to do it. But why? Because we get caught up in the lesser all the time. We think the lesser is going to deliver for us. We think the lesser is going to deliver happiness and, and wealth and success for us. But why do we drift? When we first moved to Sydney two years ago, um, the backseat drivers would pull me up and tell me that I'm stopping too early. Because when you come to traffic lights, when it goes yellow, you've got to stop. That's what I thought. And so I'm pulling up. As soon as light goes yellow, I'm on the brakes and pull. And my backseat driver said, Dad, you don't have to do this. You, you could have got that. We're running late. You could have got that light. Now, two years on, can I just inform you, there's a country guy, I have mastered the yellow light. Now, but, but because the red light's there. Why is the red light there? It's for safety. It's a matter of life and death. 
And we are nervous about running red lights, aren't we? We won't do it. There's red light cameras and I, you know, we probably don't run them because it's a matter of life and death. Now, there's now phone cameras that pick up whether you're on your phone. That's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. And yet with a phone, isn't it interesting that it's sitting there, we know it's a matter of life and death, and yet the lesser goes off and we pick it up. Now we won't run a red light, but we'll, we'll pick up a phone. Because in that moment, we've got a message from a friend or a Facebook feed or something that in the moment we find that's going to stimulate us and, and we're so quick to pick the phone up and the subtlety of it is the first time you know you shouldn't do it but then after 20 times you're just so good at it that you keep doing it and yet the reality is still the same. It's still a matter of life and death. You still could run a red light. You still could knock someone over and kill them and yet we're so quick to go to the phone all the time because we believe it's of greater benefit for us to pick that phone up than what's in front of us. It's subtle, isn't it? It's subtle because in that moment you tell yourself it will be fine. You know, we do it subtly, don't we, in church life, that, that we start to think that our salvation and our, our standing before God is because we attend church every Sunday or because of what I wear or, or our moral behaviour compared to other people in church, let alone compared to the world. Our moral behaviour is way better our success in our business surely is because I've done well and done right in front of God. And we start to shift, we start to drift. You know, those, those subtle things where your identity and your worth before God and finding your worth and your identity in Christ, to you shift to going, there's going to be parents here today and they're going to see the way that I parent. And I hope my kids won't behave too bad and so you parent in a different way because you want their approval. Or that moment someone says to you, how's your marriage? And you say, it's great, but behind doors you're not sleeping in the same bed because you're worried what people will think. The shame that that will bring to, to, to your family and to others makes you feel like I've got to live up to having everything right because that's where I get my identity rather than going, no, my life's messy, but my identity's in Jesus. You know, all that. You've had a crazy week. Been crazy. Kids have been at soccer. You've had kids' parties. And really, you've had a busy week at work. And you need a day off and you need a night off. But because you can't say no, you go, I've got to say yes to a friend because what will they think of me if I say no to this? It's so subtle, isn't it, that our identity and our worth shifts from Jesus. There's that danger, isn't there? Don't drift. Don't go for the phone. Don't go and pick it up. Go, don't go for the lesser to grab the, and miss out on the greater. I was on the side of a, a soccer field once talking to a, a Hindu man. We're having a great conversation about what he believes and what I believe. We're having, it was really great. You can have great conversations on the sporting field. And we're just talking to the Hindu. And, and I just asked the question, like, well, where's your kids go to school at? And he said, well, they go to a Christian school. And I thought, but you're a Hindu. I said, How, how's that work with your logic? And he said, well, I just want my kids to grow up and be morally right and have the great ethics. 
I don't want them to grow up and be ratbags because if they have good morals and great ethics, they're going to have a great life. And I actually think we sometimes buy that lie too. That morality will change people. That Yes, morality is going to make Australia a much more comfortable place for Christians to live in. But morality, as Joel said, will never transform people's hearts. Morality will only cause and create behaviour modification rather than heart transformation. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we're great at having boundaries. It's really good. God's laws, God's perfect laws, they're good things for us. But have you noticed that sometimes as we might disciple someone, we put all these boundaries in place for them to live to, but we never share the gospel. But we go, here's how you must behave. Everything turns out well for two years. And then three years down the track, they go straight back because it was behavior modification rather than heart transformation. Because that move, we drift from being Christ, being at the center of all we do. It's only God who can transform and give us new hearts. See, the moment that we think morality will fix this world, it's the moment we've drifted. It's the moment we've moved on from Christ. The moment you move on from Jesus is the moment you move on from real hope, you move on from real life, and you move on from real salvation. Because in that moment, you're starting to save yourself. And this is a warning, isn't it? Pay careful like be really really careful to the attention you pay like you've got to really watch it it's not something you can be lax about you know when I'm at a pool and there's a party and I'm talking with people I've got three boys they can swim they're eight seven they're great swimmers and so whether Russell Crowe's there whether the Queen's there whether the you know, whoever's important there I know I should sort of watch them, but I don't pay much attention. Why? Because they're good swimmers, they've, they've made it, and, and they're right. And so Russell Crowe can be there, and I can talk to him all day and just sort of watch my kids off to the side. But when, I, when my kids were two, I don't care whether you're Russell Crowe or the king. My attention is on them the whole time. Why? Because it was greater. Because see... I think sometimes we at first sit and, and we, we, we focus on Jesus, but then over time we start to get better. And so we think we don't need as much Jesus anymore. But see, we need to be 200% as a church, as a school, 200% pay attention to Jesus. We're not to be flippant with it. We're to be centered on him because the moment you drift, you move away from hope, life and salvation. The Christian life, we've never made it. But God is at work in us, transforming us by his grace. And how do we ensure that we don't drift? I think here's one suggestion. It's regain a sense and a reality of your sin. See, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you understand his glory, the more you get a clearer picture of Jesus, the more you'll be convicted of your sin. The reason you're growing as a Christian and you're aware of your sin more and more is because you're seeing who Jesus is more and more. And so therefore, we need to, to have a regain a sense of that sin in our life. And so maybe this week, maybe you need to go out this week and every night before you go to bed, you think, why did I say yes to that invite when I should have said no? And write it down. What was in that moment where I was finding my identity in something else rather than Jesus? What about that moment where I come to church every week? Why did I come to church today? Ask that question. Did I come because it was going to grow make God love me more or did I come because Christ has done it all 
to sit this week and, and think, well, why did I get angry at the kids this week? Why did I fear that this moment? What was it about Jesus that I'd forgotten about who he was in that time? And to spend each night just writing that down. Being centred in Christ, that's why I love the TCC motto. I love it that it's centred in Christ. Because we want students to leave grounded in Christ. That no matter what they go to, whether it's driving trucks or stacking shelves, or whether it's teaching kids or doing preschool, whether it's building houses or building drains, whether it's sitting at the, the, the court as a judge, or whether it's open heart surgery and brain surgery, we want them to leave remained in Christ, centered in Christ. So that as the world pressures and puts so many voices upon them, they'll say no. No matter how hard the crowd is that's walking against them, they'll say, no, I will, I'm going to build my life on Christ. May we as a church be exactly the same. Because in that day at the Lion's Gate, in the scheme of life, it had no repercussions. But the moment we move on from Jesus, it has real repercussions. The moment we move on, we move on from real life, real hope and real salvation. May we stay centred in Christ. See, the moment we move on, we move on from life. That's the argument here. The moment you go for that phone, you've moved on from the greater. And so let's, so let's run the race. Let's throw off everything that hinders us from being Christ-centred. Let's throw off every sin that entangles us and let us run the race with perseverance and endurance. Because, why? Because the author of our faith is Jesus and the one who's going to complete it is Jesus whom we are centred in. And for him, he found great joy in going to, to the cross to save you and to save me. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Who are you going to listen to today? Let's pray. Father, we pray today that we will delight in our Lord Jesus that we'll be centred in him, that our lives will revolve around him. May we listen to him and, and not drift. Father, we pray this week that as we reflect on our lives, as we think about those lesser things, as we go for that phone and move on from Jesus, Father, prompt us by your spirit and help us to reflect and to just lean more into the beauty and the wonder of who Christ is. Thank you for making yourself known. You did not leave us without any hope or any salvation, but you have made yourself known in your Son. And so, Father, we pray for that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.